It's not every Sunday morning that you get to hear a rap, and you also get to hear um, children reading the scriptures. It's a good morning for us here at the Grove. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Colossians. This has been their text that we've been using in order for us to be able to uh, think more deeply about what it means to celebrate Christmas here at the Grove and every year. Um, and so uh, Colossians chapter 1 is our text. We'll be going back to each of these four weeks of Christmas. And uh, it's Colossians chapter 1, specifically verses 19 and 20. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then you can uh, follow along. With, there's a hardback book in the pew back in front of you. Uh, that is a Bible. And towards the back of the Bible, you can find this particular reading on page 954 of that particular book. You can always go and download the Grove Church app, click on the Bible tab, and find uh, the text there as well. Uh, just a few brief verses. Let me just uh, read those verses uh, for us this morning. Verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Each week we're looking at what it means for us to, uh, to, to, to think about, what does it mean for us that God uh, became flesh, or God became incarnate. Last week, if you were with us, then we looked at specifically the idea of the incarnation and how staggering the idea is that God took on the form of human flesh, that creator God entered into his own creation. And we thought through some of those things and some of the implications of the incarnation. If you weren't with us and you would like to catch up with us, you can go to the Grove Church app or go online and you can listen to that sermon. Because... The, the fact that God took on and entered into his creation is absolutely staggering, and it ought to stagger us every time we think about it. But there was a, it, he, he came not just so that we would be staggered, but came for a particular purpose. And that's what we find in these verses in front of us. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That the purpose of the incarnation was not just for fun. It wasn't because God didn't have anything else to do. So he said, eh, let's go on a field trip. Nope. He came for a particular purpose. He took on flesh for a particular purpose, and that was for the purpose of reconciliation. To reconcile all things, things on earth or things in heaven. Reconciliation means to be in agreement or to bring into harmony. God came, took on flesh in order to bring into harmony, to bring into agreement all things on earth and in heaven. Well, what, does it, what exactly was Jesus reconciling? What are these all things that Jesus is reconciling that he did when he came and took on flesh? There are three primary themes that I want to speak with you about this morning that, that Jesus was doing, what he was reconciling when he came and took on flesh. The first is this. He's reconciling the relationship between God and humanity. He's reconciling the relationship between himself and all of humankind and of humanity. If you look at the verses that follow, the ones that I've read, verses 21 and following, read them this way. Once, 
You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He says, once you were alienated from God, once you were an enemy of God in your mind and in your behavior, you and God were at odds with one another. You see, it all started back with the first man and first woman, the beginning of humanity. There was God, and he had created, and he created all things, and all creation was good. And there was Adam, and Adam was with God in the beginning. And he was there at the beginning of creation and walking with God in the garden. And Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship and harmony with God until they were deceived, until they sinned and ate of the, from the tree that they were not They were told not to eat from, and then brokenness entered the world. And in Genesis chapter 3, then we have what is referred to as the curse. And this is how the the seven, this is God talking with Adam after they had sinned. Then the eyes, this is after they had sinned, this says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, Adam and Eve, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord Lord God as as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Sin entered the world, and Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. Before this, they didn't realize. There was no shame. There was no brokenness. There was no hiddenness. Immediately, they became self-conscious. They were never self-conscious. And then they began to hide from themselves and hide from God himself. They had never hid from God. They had never known shame. They had never known what it was to be ashamed. And now they do. Now there was brokenness in their relationship between God and humanity. Mankind was then banished from the Garden of Eden, from paradise that they were made for. They were made for relationship with God. They were made for relationship with the earth, with creation. It was a perfect relationship until sin entered the world. And then they realized their shame. Then they realized their brokenness. They were cast from the garden. And if you read in Genesis 3, then at the end it says, Then God put at at the edge of the garden a cherubim, and there were swords of fire flashing around. There were swords of fire because of the seriousness of sin breaking the relationship between humanity and God. And from that point on, every single human being has been born into sin. Every single person has been born into a sinful, selfish, fleshly human nature. Every person is born as an enemy against God, alienated in relationship with him from that point on. Every single one of us in this room 
That has been our condition when we were born. We were born into sin. And the question for humanity since that particular point, we were made to be in perfect relationship and harmony with God. We were made to be in perfect relationship in the garden, and yet we have been cast out, and the way back has been barred by cherubim and by flaming sword. How is it possible for humanity to ever enter into relationship with this holy God? How can it ever be possible that this relationship could ever be reconciled? How could this happen? How could it be? Well, God chose throughout the course of history he chose to continue to make himself known. First of all, in relationship with a country. He chose the nation of Israel and said that I will make a covenant with you. He did not choose them because they were a great nation. They weren't. He didn't cho choose them because they were a special nation. They weren't. He chose them because he wanted to. Because it was through this nation that God was actually going to make his covenants. It's through this nation that he was actually going to reveal himself to the world. That God, in relationship with this particular nation, that all the nations of the world would know that there is a God in Israel. And it had nothing to do with the Israelites. It had everything to do with God choosing to make a covenant with this nation, with these people, so that the world might know God. And he did. And they had a relationship with one another. And he said, this is what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God. It is what was referred to by theologians as the Old Covenant. And God guided the nation on how they could live under his rule and his reign. And God promised that one day there would be a Messiah that would be sent, that God would send his, his leader that would free this nation and the prophets of God prophesied about this one who would come and bring freedom from the bondage and from the slavery and from the brokenness of sin and from the brokenness of all of those who were coming against the nation. You might remember one of the most famous prophecies about the one who was to come from Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Can you imagine what it must have been like for those people? How is it that we can get into the presence of God? How is it that we know that our sins have been atoned for? How is it that we can know there will be one who will come? And the one who will come will have the government will be upon his shoulders and he will reign on David's throne and he will bring peace forever and the Lord Almighty, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And a staggering and an amazing promise. So they waited and they were looking they were longing for the one who is the Messiah to come. Advent is about waiting. The practice of Advent season is about longing. The practice of the Advent season is about anticipating the arrival. 
They were looking, they were waiting, they were longing, they were praying for the arrival. And one day at the appointed time, Jesus Christ came born of a virgin. God came in flesh. Jesus came and all of the fullness of God was in a child, in a baby, in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus came in order that he might reconcile to himself humanity, that he might make a way for all of humanity to be reconciled, to be ushered back into the very presence of God himself. He made a way. Jesus came to do for you and for me and for us what we could not do on our own. He came to live the perfect life that God's law required that no human could ever do, but he did in our place. And he came in order that you might be able to get into the garden. That there was the cherubim, that there was the flaming sword that kept people from the tree of life that was in the garden. Who could go into the tree of life? Who could go under the sword? It was Jesus Christ on the cross went under the sword of God's punishment, of God's justice, so that you and I might be able to walk into the garden, that we might be able to walk into his presence, that we might indeed be able to go to the tree of life, that we might have life, and that we might have life to the full. It was Christ who went under the sword so that you and I don't have to go under the sword so that we might be able to go and be ushered into the very presence of God. Advent happened. Christmas happened so that you might be reconciled to God. This is what Christ has done for you. This is the story of how God has suffered in order that you might be able to come and to know him. And the question that I have for you is have you been reconciled to God? Have you been this morning know that you have, that you're not trying to get under the sword by your own merit, by the own strength of your case that you're making before God, that you're doing enough, that somehow you've been good enough, that somehow all of your merits will somehow in the end allow you entrance into the presence of God. It won't. There's nothing you can do that can help you get through the sword. You can't. It was only Christ who took it in your place. Have you been reconciled to God? Advent. It's about the reconciliation of God and humanity, of God and you. He has done everything necessary for you to be reconciled to him. But you must submit yourself to this Christ. If not, then you're seeking to do it on your own. May I implore you, this Christmas season, 2017, to not go into 2018, trying to earn your way into the presence of God. It will not work. It is only by being reconciled to God through Christ. Have you been reconciled to him? That's what Christmas is. That's what he's done for you and for me. Second, the incarnation is about reconciliation between the rela reconciling the relationship between humanity and humanity or people. One of our tech guys says, why didn't you just say people? And I said, because I like humanity and humanity. It's provocative, isn't it? No? All right, well, bear with me. Colossians 1.18 says this, For he is the head of the body, the church, 
And he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. God is reconciling humanity to himself in his church and through his church. Christ is the head of the church, and he's reconciling things to himself through the, in the church and through the church. This is what Christ is doing. Genesis 3, when after they had sinned, and God says, what have you guys been up to? The guy says it's his fault, or it's her fault, and she says it's his fault. They started blaming each other for the very first time. There was, dis there was, there was brokenness in relationship between humanity, and it's been happening ever since. There's been brother blaming sister and sister blaming brother and brother blaming, blaming brother. There's been neighbor blaming neighbor. There's been Democrats blaming Republicans, Republicans blaming Democrats. There's been liberals and conservatives all blaming each other for all of the world's problems because humanity is broken and they've been turned on one another. And we've been watching it work itself out all throughout the course of human history, haven't we? And it started all started in the garden. In the Old Covenant, God chose to reveal himself through a nation. In the New Covenant, God chooses to reveal himself through the church. His relationship with his people gathered together who are the church. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, says, This is the New Covenant in my blood. Those who trust in me, those who come in me, that making a new covenant, those who are gathered under the headship of Jesus, those who are part of the church. Jesus is the supreme being of the church, and all of the church is the body of Christ. God is making himself known through the world, through his church, through his body. God is reconciling humanity to humanity by reconciling the church to itself. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, Be completely humble and be gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In the church, we are to be reconciled to one another. He says, that we are to be humble, we are to be gentle, we are to be patient, we are to bear with one another, we are to keep, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit of Christ through the bond of peace, because there is one body and there is one head who is Christ. In the church, we are to be reconciled to one another. In the church, we are to bear with one another. In the church, we are to discipline one another. In the church, we are to be unified with one another. In the church, we are to care for the needs of one another. In the church, we are to humbly serve one another. This is the body of Christ. This is what we are called to. Jesus Christ came to build his church and to reconcile the church that they might be able to bear with one another. You and I both know, if you've been in church for any amount of time, that there's been a shortage of this in the church. The church has too often been a place of division. The church has too often been a place of disharmony. The church has too often been a place of disunity. The church has too often been a place of disrespect. The church has too often been a place of prideful arrogance. And this is to drag the work of the incarnation into the mud. This is to take the name of Jesus Christ 
and to take and, to, and as the representative of our head and it is to dishonor him and to drag him into the mud and this should not be we must be those who bear with one another it is in there will be if you're a part of this church for any length of time there will be people who will make you mad there will be people who will annoy you there will be people who hold political persuasions that you cannot think how can someone who loves jesus hold that particular thinking there will be and they will frustrate you and the call of christ he came into the world to make himself known in his church. And the church is to be unified around the spirit of Christ. And that his call for you is to bear with one another. To bear with one another. That this is our calling. To be patient with one another. To be humble with one another. To serve one another. Because we're serving our head who at great cost and at great length to himself came and humbled himself for you so that you could be reconciled to God. So humble yourself and unify yourself or at bare minimum bear with one another for the cause and for the glory and for the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are to be reconciled to one another and we need to be careful with how we talk about other gospel churches in our community. It's not just unity between in, in our local body, although that is essential. But we need to be careful about how we having unity as it relates to the church universal. Right? There are other churches in our community around Maple Grove who are gospel churches, who are loving Jesus, who are seeking to live out his mission, albeit differently and all of, of a different flavor and maybe a different particular persuasion on secondary issues, but the primary issue that they're united in Jesus Christ. And my friends, we need to be careful with the way in which we speak about our brothers and sisters in Christ. This past week, I was with, I don't know, eight or nine of the pastors of those churches here in Maple Grove. We know one another. We're friendly with one another. This morning, and as, as every Sunday morning, I pray for those brothers. I'm praying for their success. I'm praying for their growth. I'm praying that there will be significant gospel impact in Maple Grove and the surrounding communities because these brothers are faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's say there's 25 of those churches that are faithfully proclaiming the gospel and seeking to live out his message, mission here in Maple Grove. And so let's just say that all 25 of them have 1,000 people coming to worship with them every single Sunday. That's 25,000 people that are sitting under the, the, the gospel message each Sunday. Do you know how many people are in Maple Grove who live here? There's nearly 70,000 people that call Maple Grove their home. There's still work to be done. Those churches are our friends. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to be praying for them and uniting with them for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because that means a significant majority of our community just here, not even the surrounding communities, just here in Maple Grove, need to hear the message of Jesus. Need to see Jesus lived out in their community right in front of their faces. They need you. And we need one another. So we need to have unity, not only in this church, but with our brothers and sisters from other local bodies. We need to be praying for them. We need to be supporting them. We need to be encouraging them on in the gospel ministry. Advent happened. Christ came and took on flesh to reconcile humanity to himself. 
Christ came to take on flesh, to reconcile humanity to humanity in his church. So that through his church, he might be made known. And finally this. Jesus Christ came to reconcile. Oh, no. Sorry. I got to keep. Oh, man, I got to work to do. All right, here we go. So first of all, it's the church. Second of all, it's it's our neighbors, right? Reconciling humanity to humanity is not just in the church, although that's important. It's significant, but it's through the church to our neighbors, to those who have not not yet known about the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because, you you know, there's this story in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, um, one of the teachers of the law is coming to Jesus and is saying, you know, well, let me just read it for you. He says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus and said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus went on to tell the story of what's often referred to as the Good Samaritan. He goes on to talk about that there was, he tells us this parable, the story, that there was a man, he was a Jewish man, and he was walking along the road, and then he got robbed, he got beaten, he got left for dead on the side of the road. And not long after, then along comes a priest and sees him on the side of the road, left for, nearly left for dead. And then he walks and crosses over to the other side of the road and continues on his way. Well, not long after the priest had passed by, then one of the Levites, one of the other religious workers who was walking down, sees the man, crosses to the other side of the road and continues on his way. Well, shortly after that, then there was a Samaritan man. Samaritans and Jews hated one another. They wouldn't, Jews would, take, uh, would add significant length to a journey so they didn't have to go through Samaria because they, did, they couldn't handle going through such a horrible place. Well, there's the Samaritan man. He sees this Jewish man left for dead. And instead, he kneels down. He, he tends to this man's wounds, tends to this man's needs. He bandages him. He takes him to a hotel, and he pays for his night's stay so that he can get well. Then Jesus turns to the teacher of the law and says, which of these was the neighbor? He says, the one who took care of the man, essentially. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I know this story isn't new to many of you. You may have heard this a number of times. But I wonder, as I think these things out, if we assume we have a tendency I'm afraid that we have a tendency to resemble the priest and the Levite far more than we do the Samaritan. Quite frankly, if I'm being honest, I have a tendency to fear that we have a tendency to resemble the priest and the Levite, but think we're actually like the Samaritan. We think that we're actually, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we're actually like the Samaritan. And we say, well, it's because I, I wrote a check for the benevolent fund, or it's, it's because I, I, I went with the 4-H and went over to feed my starving children, so see, I'm, I'm in. I mean, I'm, I, I've got my Samaritan box checked, right? I, I, and I think that is to miss the significance of what Jesus calls us to be and to do. And I think that is to severely limit 
It not, I love Feed My Starving Children, and I, and I will, I'm so thrilled with your generosity to, to the Benevolent Fund, and yet that doesn't do it. That doesn't cut it. That's not what Jesus is calling us to be and do. We have too often, I'm afraid, looked the other way at injustice. We have too often left the work, that work to others who are more justice-type Christians. We've too often dismissed the voice of the marginalized. We've too often been unreflective about our own attitudes towards race and people of color. We've too often forgotten that Jesus himself was not a white man. Because he wasn't. And this man came and says, love your neighbor. Go love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. He says, love your enemy. Love those with whom you disagree. Love those who are far different from you. Love those who are from a different country. Love those who have a different skin color, who like different food and spices than you do. Those who are not like you and who wouldn't feel comfortable in your spaces. Go to those places and be loving those people. You know, we have arguments this week that were heard before the Supreme Court about a baker and a gay couple that got married. How do we navigate this world? What does it mean for us to love like Jesus loves? What does it mean for us to be the Good Samaritan in our hearts and in our actions, in our deeds? I don't have it all sorted. I don't have it all figured out. But can I share with you some of the reflections from Ed Stetzer? He holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College. He's the Executive Director of the Billy Graham Center. He wrote an article for Christianity Today, and I just want to share with you a couple paragraphs. Christians do not need to be ashamed of advocating for justice as the laws of the just society have proven to be vital tools for the proclamation of the gospel. gospel. Yet the difficult but essential nature of justice is that it demands consistency. If Christians are going to advocate for justice, we need also to care about the rights of the LGBT persons. More than doing so simply as fellow citizens, our faith calls us to value justice for all. That LGBT advocates are speaking in the language of justice means that we need to take seriously the judicial implications of the debate, thinking critically on how we can both protect our own rights and recognize the rights of those with whom we disagree. I would suggest that rather than thinking exclusively about how to achieve justice for ourselves, Christians need to think critically on the issue of justice itself. We need to arrive at a place where both rights are valued, even if, imperf even if imperfectly. The difficult part of justice is that it demands consistency. At times, we have to protect the rights of others, even if it demands sacrifice from ourselves. All this is to say that there has to be a place within a fair and just society where two communities of different political, religious, and cultural perspectives can agree to disagree while still respecting one another's rights and dignity. We can do better on a whole variety of issues. We can do better. We must do better because Jesus Christ is called. He says they will know that we are his followers by our love, by our love. We need to think seriously, and we have wonderful opportunities
to be able to do that right now in our day and our age because God has called us to be the church in this day and in this age to continue to hold firm to the gospel and yet go radically love those who are very, very different than us. We can do better. Thirdly, and lastly, and I won't be able to do justice to this, but I'm going to just fly at a high level. The incarnation is about, is about reconciling the relationship between God, humanity, and creation. That Jesus took on flesh means that at the deepest level, he validates the very creation that he made. Look, look at the first couple of verses of these paragraphs that are before us. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible, invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus created all things. Jesus is holding all things together. Jesus entered into his very creation, and he promises that he will one day restore all things, that he will, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. He's holding all these things together. He's reconciling all things to himself. Revelation 21 says there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will be ushered in. The, this current creation matters to Jesus. He became a part of it, which therefore stamped dignity into this particular place, into this earth, into this cosmos, right? And so therefore, we need to think through what it means for us, the relationship between us and cre the created order that, that God has made. To Two verses. Psalm 24, verse 1, says, says this, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 115, the earth he has given to mankind. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yet the earth God has given to mankind. Those are not in competition with one another. They're not contradictory to one another. They complement one another. God, all things belong to God. This whole earth, this whole cosmos is God's. And yet he has placed humanity over the cosmos in order to manage it, to take care of it, to work it, if you like. This is what God has called us to do. He gave Adam a job, which is to tend to the garden. But since the curse... Then, it, then it's been working hard. Now, now we, there are two tensions that need to be, we need to recognize that one, we, we can't, because we are a relationship with nature, we need to recognize that we can't deify nature, which is what pantheists do, right? Or, or New Age Gaia movement is, where it's saying that, that, that God is in all of nature. We, we recognize that that's not, that's not in accordance with what the scriptures have to say. God isn't in the creation himself. God created and God entered into creation as human. That's different. We also need to be careful of not falling off the other extreme, and that is to the, the exploitation of nature, that we therefore putting ourselves in the place of God, saying, well, here we are as, 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 as the God of this, as if we own this creation, and therefore we can just exploit it to its very end. We can't do that either. Because it doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Therefore, we are to steward the very creation that we have been put in position. God entrusted it to us so that we might be able to work the very nature that God has given us for the good of human flourishing. That's why we're here. That's what we're to do. To put systems and structures in place for the good of humanity and for the good of human flourishing. This is a relationship because God is reconciling all things. As Christians, we are to cooperate with God. 
God made creation of which we are a part. God partners with us to work the garden, to work the nature. This is called the cultural mandate by theologians. God has given us the raw materials of nature, that we are to therefore create culture from that for the good of human flourishing and for the glory of God. We are not to conserve the environment, we're not only to conserve the environment, but also develop it, develop it for the common good and for the flourishing of humanity. John Stott says, it is a noble calling to cooperate with God for the fulfillment of his purpose to transform the created order for the pleasure and profit of all. We need to think seriously about the implications of the fact that Christ is reconciling all things, all this whole cosmos. And so therefore, these conversations about ecological things, we need to take seriously as Christian people because we are stewards of the very creation that he has given us. Christ came and took on flesh. And so therefore, Advent ought to teach us to take a prophetic posture. Mandy Smith, she's a writer and an author, she says this, Advent teaches us a prophetic posture to simultaneously see what is broken and to hope for what is being made new. We, Christ came into a broken reality. We are the church in a broken reality. We're not talking that Christmas is all about gingerbread houses and eggnog. Right? That's to avoid, the, that's to not see the realities of where we are. And yet we don't despair because Christ came, because he broke through the cross. He broke all that was necessary for us to be reconciled to him, for humanity to be reconciled to one another, for creation to be reconciled to one another. And in the tension, we are to live and to live out our faith till one day our faith becomes sight and he makes all things new. And this is the hope of why the incarnation came for us. And yet there's work to be done. He calls us to action because we are his church and we bear his name. May we take another step because of Christ and what he's done for us. Let me pray. Father, Christmas isn't merely about singing songs that give us warm and fuzzies. But there's real work that you came to do. And there's real work that still needs to be done because we are your body and you are our head. And Father... Will you help remind us this Advent season of what it really truly means to live out our faith with integrity, to work these things out? Will you help us to repent where repentance is necessary? Will you help us to step out in love where love is necessary? Will you help all of us to do it in faith because of Christ who came in a manger and is indeed our King? We come under his rule and reign. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.